This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk to Professor Alan Mikhail. Professor Alan Mikhail is widely recognized for his work in Middle Eastern uh, history and global history. He's the author of four books and over 30 scholarly articles that have received multiple awards in the fields of Middle Eastern and environmental history, including the Fuad Koprulu Book Prize from the Ottoman and Turkish Studies Association for his book, Under Osman's Tree, The Ottoman Empire, Egypt, and Environmental History, and the Roger Owen Book Award of the Middle Eastern Studies Association for Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt and Environmental History. His latest book is God's Shadow, Sultan Salim, and His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World. However, today we will be talking about his very latest book is My Egypt Archive, published by Yale University Press in 2023. My Egypt Archive is an unmatched contemporary history of authoritarian politics and unflinching examination of the politics of historical authority. My Egypt Archive is at once a chronicle of Egypt in the 2000s and a historian's uh, Buildings uh, Roman. As Ella Mikhail dutifully collected the paper scraps of the past, he witnessed how the everyday oppressions of a government institution led most Egyptians to want to remake their society in early 2011. In telling these stories of the archive, Mikhail centers the politics of access, interpersonal relationships, state power, and the emotion, anxiety, and inchoate nature of historical research. My Egypt Archives reveals the workings of an authoritarian regime from inside its institution and the decade leading up to the Arab Spring, and in doing so, point the way to exciting new modes of historical inquiry that give voice to the visceral realities all historians experience. Welcome, Professor Allen, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Hi, Ahmed. Uh, very nice to be with you. My pleasure. It's great to see you and talk to you after such a long time from the AHA conference in New York City, which feels like a decade ago. <laughs> and so I'm glad to talk about your exciting and really refreshing uh, reflection uh, on the state of the archives, politics, and history. Uh, but we would like first to learn about the authors. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors. So um, I was born in Texas uh, at the end of the 1970s uh, to Egyptian parents um, who had immigrated a decade or so before. I went to college um, in Houston at Rice University. Uh, Then I went to graduate school at uh, the University of California, Berkeley. I never really intended to be a historian. I wasn't necessarily even that interested in the Middle East. Um, Growing up, uh, given the parents that I had, uh, Egypt was was just sort of in the water. Um, We spoke some mix of Arabic and English at home. Uh, Most of our family was uh, still in Egypt, so we would go often in the summers. and uh, the kind of culture that I grew up in was was a kind of Egyptian household in the United States. Didn't really necessarily have a wide um, community of Egyptians or, or Arabs around us, uh, but nevertheless, I, I had my home life. Um, I went to college thinking I would be an engineer of some kind. I, w- I liked math and science in high school. And so that's what I intended to do. Um, I went uh, to Rice. Uh, there was a, a, a class on uh, Middle Eastern history, so I thought I would take it just to try it out. 
um, see if I could learn something. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, I, I learned a lot. It, it helped me to sort of put some meat on the bones of what I knew growing up, but it didn't really change my plans in terms of wanting to be an engineer. I continued taking uh, some history classes and all kinds of, of, of courses. I, I benefited from having a kind of broad liberal arts education. At a certain point, um, science and engineering fell out. I had a kind of crisis of what I was going to do with myself. I thought I'd be a French major, religious studies, et cetera. Um, and I continued taking history courses and really enjoying them. And at a certain point, I was taken with the idea of a deep historiography. Um, I was taken with the kind of indeterminacy of the kinds of questions one could ask in the study of the past. I was interested in history and theory broadly conceived. Um, I was interested in languages, um, French and Arabic primarily, but increasingly also Turkish. Um, and so I was finishing um, uh, my college years. I ended up being both a history and chemistry major, so the science didn't completely fall out. Um, and I wasn't sure what I would do with myself. I, I applied to various kinds of programs and jobs and things. Um, and the best option before me, I thought, was to go to Berkeley um, to enter a PhD program in history, all the while thinking I might drop out after a couple of years. Uh, Berkeley appealed to me um, because of its particular program. Uh, and also a history PhD appealed to me because it would allow me to uh, study abroad um, in Europe and the Middle East uh, to continue to learn languages, to continue um, down this path of historiography and the kinds of questions I was interested in asking. And I went to Berkeley and I absolutely loved every moment of graduate school. Um, it wasn't clear to me that would be the case. Uh, I loved my coursework and reading. Um, I loved the writing, as difficult as it was. I loved language study in the summers. I loved living abroad in, um, in Egypt, um, in Turkey. I spent some time in the UK, um, in France and other places in Europe. Uh, so I just continued to enjoy um, my work in graduate school. And, and so, um, you know, that momentum carried me forward. Um, into uh, a dissertation project. You know, coming to a dissertation project um, was difficult for me as it is for, for anybody. Um, I was interested in, through coursework, I became increasingly interested in the history of medicine, the body. Um, I was interested in agrarian history. Uh, I was interested increasingly in early modern history. Um, my interests initially, I think, were slightly more modern than, than they became. And um, I was interested in doing something different, um, relational, um, so not ensconced in any one particular historiographic or national tradition, um, and something that would uh, allow me to connect the Middle East to global history. Um, and so... The dissertation project that I landed on essentially became my first book, um, Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt. Would you describe as uh, an influential mentor or, or a historian that more or less uh, helped you shape up your career? Um, you know, you I can answer that question on multiple levels. I mean, there are my my teachers. Um, Bashar Dumani, Leslie Pierce, Khaled Fahmi, uh, Tom McCurr, Paul Rabinow. Um, that was my dissertation committee right there. Um, and from each of them, I, I took something. Um, um, I could say individually what I took from each of them, but that, that, that might take a while. Um, it, it, it's probably pretty clear just looking at my work, um, what each of them um, gave to me. And I'm forever grateful, obviously, for, for everything that they did give to me. Um, you know, at a broader level, um, the kind of mentors I had on the page, we might say, 
are, um, you know, in, in some ways indicative of the age I was in. in gra- I was in graduate school. So Foucault at Berkeley and, you know, being in graduate school um, in the 2000s from 2001 to 2008 was uh, a presence um, in, in lots of kinds of ways. Um, and I think that comes through in my in in, in my my early work, certainly. Um, Said was very influential, obviously. I mean, it's almost a cliche to say that. Um, John McNeil as a, an environmental historian uh, that had a global perspective was key for me. Um, so, you know, those are some of the names that, that um, immediately come to mind. Thank you for sharing that. Now let's move to the book and its chapters. Uh, first, My Egypt Archive. Uh, how would you describe the book as a genre? Is it a memoir? Is it an ethnography? Is it a mixture of different genres? Uh, where would you classify the book as a librarian, let's say, in its own archives? Um, yeah. Um, so before I answer that question, maybe I can just sort of tie the, the first set of questions to this one and sort of how I came to, to this project, um, which is different than than things I've written before. Um, you know, I, I published three books um, on and an edited volume on Middle East environmental history broadly construed um, that sort of came out of, of, of some of the, the work I did for uh, Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt, the relationality, um, Egypt's place in the Ottoman Empire, global environmental history, tying the Middle East to other parts of the world. Um, and uh, then I, I wrote a book, God's Shadow, that um, is similar and different um, to that earlier work in the sense, it's similar in the sense of wanting to tie uh, the Middle East to global history, um, thinking about the Ottoman Empire in its broadest expanse, thinking about the Ottoman conquest of the Arab world um, that Salim undertook, uh, and that was crucial for thinking about um, the Arab world under Ottoman rule, um, thinking about bureaucracy and its place um, in the creation of empire. Um, all of those things are, 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 are continuities between my earlier work in God's Shadow God's Shadow is very different, obviously. Um, it's very different um, in the time period it's focused on. It's very different in the kinds of arguments it's making. It's not environmental history. Um, it's written in a very different kind of way. Um, this book, um, My Egypt Archive, in some ways steps back from those books to think about the craft of doing history. So it's connected to that earlier work in the sense that um, it's the story of a lot of the archival work that went in uh, to that earlier work. Um, in some ways, it's, as you pointed to, memoiristic in the sense of um, uh, what it means for me to be a historian, how I became a historian, my experiences as a historian. Um, but you're right to point to its kind of mixed genre nature. It is uh, memoiristic, as we said. I think of it, I, I hope that it's also um, theoretical in its own kinds of ways of thinking about um, what it means to do history and how historians do it. Um, it is uh, ethnographic um, in the sense that it's very much uh, a story of my relationships with uh, people in a certain moment in Egypt's history, so between 2001 and 2010. Um, I'm very interested in things that anthropologists are interested in, um, power relations, uh, thinking about um, uh, how human societies are constructed, um, the intersections between um, the state and the family, uh, the state and the individual, um so it's it's ethnographic in, in in that sense uh it seeks to make a, a kind of methodological intervention in the study of history in the following in several ways but primarily in the following way it's my sense from my own work and for from being a historian now let's say for 20 years 
um, that, you know, there's a lot that's, I don't want to say purposely hidden, but let's say masked or not made transparent in the work of historians. Um, and that is the experiences that go into writing the work that we do. Um, when we when we offer historical narratives, when we write historical monographs of the sort uh, that I have written up to this point in my career, um, what are the experiences that went into the making of that book? Um, what was it like to live in the archives uh, for a period? Um, what was all the work that went into that one citation? As we all know, footnoting a source um, involves a lot of um, work time, power, negotiation, sacrifice, um, interaction with, with archivists, other researchers, with historiography. So I wanted to pierce that, that, that fourth wall um, and really think about um, what it means uh, to do history, to take seriously the experiences um, that go into um, being a historian, writing historical scholarship, and to think about what that might mean for the study of history, for our understandings of what history is, for what it means to be a historian um, in the world. So I want the book to operate at that level. At another level, again, addressing your question about genre, it is a study of Egypt between 2001 and 2010. Um, a period, you know, only retrospectively, of course, and there's an argument there for the study of history, um, we could read as, quote unquote, the lead up to 2011, um, the Arab uprisings, uh, specifically, obviously, in my case, um, Egypt in 2011. Um, so, you know, as I explain in, in the book, um, the the what became my Egypt archive started off as a journal that I kept while I was doing archival research in this period between 2001 and 2010. Um, I went back to that journal once uh, the uprisings began in 2011 and, um, you know, was able to read it through the lens of the uprisings to see in that arc in that archive of the journal um, the kinds of, of, of frustrations um inequities oppressions subjugations uh that that were really given voice um in uh 2011 of course i i knew that viscerally and from my own experiences of living in egypt being in egypt observing uh um what egyptians experienced and went through on a daily basis but here it was in written form um and and so i i thought that that was one of the ways that this um, journal that I'm calling an archive um, could be read as a kind of chronicle of Egypt in the lead up to 2011. And that seems important to me because of um, the state's efforts to um, repress um, uh, information um, um, in a kind of general way and um, to withhold um, information from um, the general the general Egyptian populace and therefore the wider world. And so I'm under no illusion that this book is, is in any way a kind of um, robust history of the uprising. It's not meant to be that or a kind of complete story of Egypt in, um, in the period from 2001, 2010. It's not meant to, um, to um, explain the experiences of um, individual Egyptians in that period. I'm under no illusions that that's what this book is. It is very much a kind of idiosyncratic uh, um, account of my own experiences as a particular subject, as uh, an Egyptian-American privileged researcher who happened to be in Egypt in the archive in this period. Um, despite that sort of very specific um, experience that was my own, I do think there's value in bringing up uh, to the fore um, some of the vignettes, the stories that make up the individual chapters um, in this book. Thank you for walking us through the journey of uh, writing the book, situating the book, uh, living with the book, and, uh, and, and journaling uh, Egyptian history 
for a decade. Um, so you were creating the archives and studying the archives at the same time, I guess. Uh, let's now delve further into the book. The book is divided into 12 short chapters, and you beautifully title the chapters as if we are reading through the contours of a book project, notes on the sources, contents, permissions, figures, volume, issues, copyrights, errata, images, tables, royalty, credits. Can you talk about the very craft of writing this book, uh, the labor, the, the imagination, the readings that you drew on to imagine this project as, as my Egypt archive? Yeah, um, as I said, the the writing of it really began as as these kinds of journal entries as i was going very haphazard you know obviously never meant it for public consumption um there's vast distance between the journal and the final published book of course um so you know i had this journal i didn't think much of it um i went back to it after 2011 um and the period you know the book was only published this year so, you know, the, the, over 12 years between 2011 and 2023, 20, uh, there were various moments where I thought, let me work on this a little bit. Um, I, at some point, thought, okay, I'm definitely publishing it, uh, this as a book. At other times, I thought, there's no way I'm publishing this as a book. Um, you know, if I had pockets of time or, or a certain experience or conversation I had with someone that would remind me of something I had written, I would go back and, and kind of work on this. So it was very much fits and starts um, that I that I worked on this. Again, it was mostly a kind of labor of love for me uh, for, for, for most of the the time that I worked on this. Um, but I was very in, so so. There's that piece. Um, it is meant to be written in a very okay, engaging, um, crafted kind of way. Um, I really. Uh, you know, the the more I, I do this work of being a historian, the more important it is to me to think with the writing. Um, I really do believe that uh, there, there's thought in the construction of the book and in its form and in its writing. Um, so I, I tried obviously to write this um, in a very engaging way, in a way that would um, make it accessible, open, interesting for the reader. And I also wanted to play with form. So the table of contents that you mentioned is part of that effort of, of playing with form, of opening up uh, the historical monograph um, and asking questions about it. Um, so that's why the the chapter titles are the kinds of, um, you know, normal front matter pieces uh, um, and, and back matter pieces uh, that we associate with, um, with monographs um, in, in history and in other disciplines. Uh, so to throw that form up into question. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of inspirations that I drew on in terms of the writing of this book, a lot of it was from anthropology. So I was taken with um, uh, the work in humanistic anthropology and the anthropology of the state um, in thinking about uh, writing generally. I think anthropologists are better at thinking about writing than historians in many ways. Um, and thinking about form um, and being more creative with um, with the the forms that their books take. So I was drawn to that. Um, and in the in the last chapter entitled Credits, um, which is both a kind of chapter that's acknowledgments and uh, and the bibliography of the book, you know, I cite all of the things that um, inspired me. In, in this kind of, uh, in, in this mode of writing. Um, so if, if you are interested, I would refer them to that last, to that last, uh, last um, chapter. Um, yeah, so I, I, I will say another uh, kind of um, thing that I took from anthropology that was very appealing to me um, is their, their constant mode of crisis um, and of questioning the discipline and what exactly it is that they're doing um, and their places as um, ethnographers, interlocutors, anthropologists um, in their own work. I mean, every discipline is always in crisis at some level, history included. Um, I think anthropology, though, is very good at bringing those questions uh, to the fore and centering them in their work. 
um, asking exactly what it is they are doing in their work and from there opening up different theoretical questions. And that's that's one of the things I try to do in this book is, is to kind of crack open uh, the historical monograph to say, what is it that we are doing as historians? Um, my place as a living, breathing, um, in my case, privileged Egyptian American with uh, grant money from the United States who is able to travel and live in Egypt um, in a way that uh, puts him in a class category far above that of most Egyptians, uh, a person with a certain uh, uh, gender and political bent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what, is, what does my presence in the archive um, mean for the archive, um, mean for the um, final product that will be produced from my presence in the archive, the historical monograph, articles, et cetera? And what might taking seriously that as a problem, as a question, as, um, as a historical phenomenon mean for our understanding of the study of history, the craft of history, the writing of history, the doing of history. So that's something that I think anthropologists are very good at always sort of keeping at the center of their work. Um, and so that was, that was another thing that I took from um, from uh, the the literature and anthropology that I was reading, which is um, again something that I had been interested in since graduate school. I had an anthropologist on my dissertation committee. I took many classes in anthropology. Um, so that was all present. Another kind of major body of scholarship, obviously, um, was work on Egypt. Um, and you know, where we are lucky that there has been um, more and more work. Um, I would say, you know, long before 2011, and certainly since 2011, uh, that makes the archive a question in Egypt, or that makes access to uh, historical materials a question in Egypt. So we have studies of, you know, the formation of the archive as a bureaucratic institution, um, as a state institution. Um, and then we have other histories that um, point to the absences, the politics of archival access, the politics of information, the way the state uses information, the archives as a bureaucratic institution, um, as um, 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 uh, as a, a, a mode of politics. Um, and, and then there's more and more work, as difficult as it is, that is kind of an anthropology of the state in Egypt. Um, and so thinking about the archive as a part of the Ministry of Culture, right, as a state institution, I was able to benefit from that work also. Right. And before um, zooming on Egypt, I would like you to reflect on archives and archival bureaucracy overall in the Middle East, because you are known to be a historian of an empire. Therefore, you have more or less an idea about the state of archival bureaucracy overall in the region. I wonder uh, what you think of the recent surge and also scholarship on the archives. We have books like Professor Marina Aristo published recently, The Lost Archives of the Fatimids. It's a different kind of book, but also you have uh, Rose Bashir's book on archival wars about the Saudi archives and making of history. So what do you think of this turn to archival studies? Uh, and what do you think your book contributes uh, to that. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, it's you know heartening and um, inspiring to see more and more scholars interested in these kinds of questions. I mean, you know, one of the things that is both, uh, I would say, uh, a benefit and a disadvantage um, in Middle East studies generally is that we have lots of open questions, right? Lots of areas of scholarship that uh, are in some ways completely untouched. Um, and so it's it's heartening to see um, a concentration of work on particular subjects emerging in, 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 in particular moments. And I think uh, you know, why now is is um, a question that I think I, I sort of started to answer at least um, in in talking about um, uh, uh, my own book in 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 answer to a previous question. So um, 
so at the level at the level of, of, of scholarly publication, there is, as you say, more and more work that is thinking seriously about archives, archival practice, archival construction. Um, I could answer your question slightly differently in that um, I've used multiple archives of Middle Eastern history, let's say. So, you know, the, the Egyptian National Archives, um, as I discussed in the book, uh, but also, you know, the the other, in some ways, I don't want to say more important, but as important archive for me is the Ottoman archives in um, in Istanbul, um, and then other archives in Turkey. Um, so uh, I think those are very different kinds of archives um, in in many ways. Uh, we could cite just a couple. Um, the Ottoman archives is in some ways, um, in very real ways, an imperial archive, right, of the Ottoman state. Um, it's a place where you can study Bulgaria, Egypt, Algiers, you know, Kuwait. Um, and so when you're there, you you there are scholars from all those places working in this imperial archive in a similar way that, you know, when one works in Kew, uh, there are people working on all parts of the world, right? So the Ottoman archives uh, functions in that way as an imperial archive. Um, it's also the, the view from the palace, from the, uh, the ruling body of that empire. Um, it's different also in, in just the way that it functions. Um, you know, I, I just, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about, you know, the inability to receive photocopies for uh, instance in the Egyptian National Archives. Something like that in Istanbul is completely different. It's very easy. Uh, now it, it, it's, it's, it's even easier to get um, electronic copies of, of, the, um, of the archive. During the pandemic, we saw you don't even need to be in Istanbul to, to access the archive. Vastly different than what one encounters in, in Egypt. Um, it is much more organized than um, the Egyptian archive at the level of, you know, the cataloging of the collection. Um, it's still a minuscule amount of material that's been archived in Istanbul, but what has been archived, cataloged, I mean, is, um, is, uh, is organized, accessible. There are summaries, there are call numbers. It's in a way that it is very different than in the Egyptian archive. So, um, so very different kinds of archives. I mean, another way to answer your question is, is thinking about the state of archival access in the Middle East more generally. So, you know, a, a, another reason, another impetus for me to write the book um, is because the moment I'm writing about in Egypt is is in some ways lost. Uh, I mean, it's obviously lost in the way that all past moments are lost, but it's lost in the sense that access after 2011 to the archive, I see this from you know, uh, speaking to other colleagues, my own students, um, is, is in some, is more difficult. Um, it's much more policed um, in the way that Egypt, uh, we might say, uh, is more policed generally. Um, it's, it's more difficult to access. When I was there it, between 2001 and 2010, the archive was also policed and managed very closely, but there was a sense that one could get in there and really do, um, you know, uh, large-scale archival research. Um, there were there were lots of Egyptians working there and lots of foreigners as well. Um, and it's just, it, it, it's a it's smaller scale now in the sense of being able to access things and work there on large-scale projects. Partly that also has to do with the um, creation of the electronic catalog, which was a, a very new thing that I end the book with. And I end the book because I do think that is in some ways... Um, that is a major turning point in the life of the archive and makes the experience of working there now um, uh, much more difficult. So there's that kind of immediate question. There's also just the obvious, <laughs> the obvious point of um, the political circumstances of the moment um, since 2011, but you know, changing in, in, over the course of the past decade so that there were major periods in Egypt where it was very difficult to do archival research, both for Egyptians and foreigners. Um, obviously, in a place like Iraq over the past, let's say, 30 years, uh, very difficult to do archival research. Syria, Lebanon, increasingly so. 
Um, you know, Turkey has its own issues, uh, it, certain parts of North Africa. So, so the question of archival access in the Middle East is obviously a, a major one that I think um, the field sometimes grapples with, but, but not really. I mean, a, a lot of the scholarship on archives, what, the books that you mentioned and, and, and other books that you, you didn't mention, um, don't necessarily grapple with that question. Um, there's a lot of kind of the history of the creation of the archive as a national institution, um, very useful and important, uh, but doesn't, doesn't really grapple with this question of, of project design and research design. Um, one thing that, you know, my own work thinks about um, and that I think about a lot and talk to colleagues about um, is the idea of the Ottoman archives as a kind of default archive for the history of the Middle East, especially in the early modern period, but, but also in the 19th century, and thinking about the nature of that archive. So in some ways, again, depending exactly when we're talking about in the past 20 years, um, it became uh, a place where, you know, scholars who worked on Iraq, Egypt, Syria, many other places, of course, uh, would go to because they couldn't access archives in those in in those countries. Um, and so you are able to narrate the history of Egypt or you know, Syria or Iraq from the Ottoman archives, but it's a particular kind of narration. There's a particular kind of source that one gets from using the kind of imperial archive that the Ottoman archives is. And I don't think we question that. I don't think we make that a problem um, in a lot of the scholarship that we do. So, some people do. I don't want to overstate it. But I think that's that's not something that the field has really grappled with in a real way. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, with the fact that there are many researchers who work on the Arab world who never consult the Ottoman uh, archives. And that's fine. Um, but that also is a particular a particular hue of of scholarship and a particular hue of archival research. Any archive, of course, has its politics, has its blind spots, has its strengths and its weaknesses. So part of the the effort of this book is is to is to make those kinds of questions front and center. Again, in my own particular specific idiosyncratic way in this book, but I hope that um, scholars of of the Middle East will pick up those kinds of questions and, and hopefully enliven them in their own ways, in their own scholarship. The last thing I'll just say here is, um, you know, this is a book in some ways, um, it's the book I wish I had in graduate school before I went to the archive of kind of throwing up all these kinds of questions of doing archival research. Uh, what it means to be um, a young scholar in an archive attempting to use a collection, interacting with archivists and other scholars uh, who are also doing archival research. So, you know, I, I, I hope that graduate students will, um, will pick up this book and that it will be meaningful and useful to them as they enter into the field. Thank you for that. And we are grateful for such a reflection as a grad student. I uh, did, I would say, connect to your experiences going to the archives. And uh, let me thinking also about how archival access and who gets access to what shapes what people can and can do work on. And that also connects to um, how the practice of also gatekeeping in academia is also underpinned by an authoritative and authorized access and command of the archives. So can you connect these two together? Um, yeah, so, right, one of the things that I, I talk about in, in the book, uh, as, you, as you say, is um, who gets ac access to what, and what that means uh, for the kind of history that they're able to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to throw up the kind of non-acknowledgement of that. Um, at the time, at, at the same time that it's it's crucial, right? I mean, it's it's absolutely central, right? Uh, you know, we are not our archives <laughs> as scholars, but um, it, in in some ways we are, in the sense that you know what we have access to um, creates a, a kind of wall of possibility. Um, and so I, I talk about in the in the book 
the kind of struggles that I experienced um, and that other uh, graduate students um, and younger scholars in the archives experienced in getting access to materials, um, in requesting a certain number of materials, for example, um, as compared to the very senior, uh, accomplished, renowned Egyptian historians uh, who were able to get access to copious amounts of material anytime they wanted, um, to be able to photocopy at will as many sources as they wanted to, who seemingly had no limits on what they could access. So, you know, there's a kind of gatekeeping at the level of the archive and the archivists, right? And that, I think, is, is one of the things I wanted to, to lean into a little bit. Where does that come from? Um, how is that shaped? How is that built? Um, and and that, is, that is a kind of ethnographic question, right? That's a question that's built through a set of relationships between historians and archivists. Um, it has to do with the place of those historians in Egypt, Egyptian society and culture, age, class, um, professional standing, right? Um, cachet, cultural cachet of various kinds built through various means. Um, and, uh, and a kind of experience, right? Having, having um, a life experience um, in Egypt uh, that uh, makes those things possible. So, you know, I don't think that the archivists uh, had any sense of, um, you know, oh, if I give sources to this person as opposed to that person, then this kind of historical narrative will be produced. I don't think that at all. It's more about the kind of um, quotidian everyday interactions. And that's why the kind of taking seriously those things really matters, right? Because it it helps us to see uh, the shape of, of the possible uh, for historical scholarship. So, um, yeah, that's something that I, I very much wanted to put uh, front and, and center um, in this book. Um, you know, um, gatekeeping occurs in, in um, all kinds of ways in Middle East studies, as it does in other fields. You know, I think that's been a very negative phenomenon um, in the field. Um, it's a kind of politics I don't ascribe to in any sort of way. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so it's it's not something that I address specifically in this book, apart from the kind of archival access question. Um, but you know, if you're if you're asking me kind of at a deeper level, if the kinds of um, forms of knowledge production and politics that I'm playing out in the book occur uh, in other realms um, in scholarship in the historical profession, obviously they do. Um, and so opening those kinds of things up in um, this kind of book and, and bringing them front and center, I think allows for other kinds of possibilities of, of, of questioning that form of politics around knowledge production in other realms. Thank you for sharing that. And thinking about the Egyptian National Archives as an institution and who defines what history is basically is in Egypt, can you tell us more about how come what is, uh, let's say, post-monarchical Egypt doesn't count as history and how Egyptians countered that definition of history in generating, let's say, alternative archives or alternative ways of accessing their past? Uh, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, the, the, this goes back to the kind of twinned question of, of access and knowledge. Um, so... You know, many, many scholars have noted that access to Egypt post 40s, let's say, at some point in the 40s, certainly from 52 on, um, archival uh, archival materials for, for that period are very difficult to access and or d don't exist or are not made uh, open to researchers. So, th so that means um, that working on that period, one has to seek out other kinds of sources. So uh, Khaled Fahmi, for example, has has spoken and written about this very eloquently in, in multiple places. So I refer people uh, to, to, to his work. Um, but, but it means that, you know, when you're in the archives, the Egyptian National Archives, um, most people there are working on earlier periods. So 19th century, 
and the early modern period. When I was there from, from you know, 2001 to 2010, um, you know, in a kind of very regular way, uh, there was a lot of work being done on the early modern period, on the Ottoman centuries, right? Um, Egyptian historians and non-Egyptian historians. Um, there were a set of, I would say more non-Egyptian historians working on the 19th century, and then a kind of smattering of people working on the early 20th century. Um, you know, sort of the closer you get to the present, the more quote unquote sensitive questions become. So questions around Egypt's foreign policy or uh, questions around, in my case, the Nile, for example, become much more politicized and therefore um, 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 harder to gain archival material about the closer one gets to the present. So, um, so in, in some ways, the early modern period is easier to work on in terms of the copiousness of uh, archival materials. Um, and the 19th century is also, there are a lot of sources on the 19th century um, that are available in the archives that, um, that many scholars do work on. But again, the closer you get, the more sensitive these questions become. And um, another thing I just want to point to here is in the Egyptian National Archives itself, there are many, many sources from the early modern period and the 19th century in Ottoman Turkish that um, scholars sometimes use, but more often don't use, right? In the 19th century, there are an enormous number of sources in French and Italian, right? Um, so there are multiple languages in the Egyptian National Archives. It's not just Arabic, although obviously Arabic is the primary one. I think, though I haven't done a, you know, a exhaustive study of this, I think that either French or Ottoman Turkish would be the second um, uh, most common language in, in, the, in the archives. Um, but the, the point I, I just want to make is that the Ottoman sources are very, are very significant, especially for the early modern period and, uh, and the 19th century. So what do historians do post, let's say, 1940, 1952? Um, you know, the press is obviously very, very important. Uh, Egypt, as you know, has a very robust uh, periodical and newspaper culture. Um, so uh, historians use that. The, the published writings of important figures um, and non-important figures are, are often used. Um, there are some kind of governmental sources that one can access. Some are published and, and some are not. Um, memoirs become very, very significant. Um, you know, the journals of learned societies become very, very significant. Um, but it's a different, it's a different kind of, of, of archive, right? It's a different, it's a different source base from which one can draw, uh, information about the, the, po the post-19, um, you know, let's just call it 52 period. Um, obviously there are many questions, many problems, um, both theoretical and informational, um, about that state of affairs. Um, but, uh, you know, this book, I think, points to some of those questions as well, even if in some ways the archive kind of ends in 1952, the Egyptian National Archives kind of ends in 1952, if not earlier. Um, but, but the kinds of questions I'm, I'm asking in this book about the creation of historical narratives, about access, about power politics, about the place of information in Egyptian society, I think are still relevant, um, even for people who work on that, that later period. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that, you know, as they say, uh, something like the, the need is mother of invention. So that created really a, a productive and imaginative ways of writing Egyptian history. And uh, in thinking about positionality, so once you read uh, a historical monograph, you might think about the personal dimension and the acknowledgement and the epilogue or the prologue uh, to get a sense of how the historian was, let's say, read in the field in the archives how and what sort of relationship they developed with the history they're writing about so what are some of the ways uh you could basically tell the you know historians in training or who are right, working on historical projects to be more cognizant and aware uh of their positionality and how they are basically uh, making history through their projects 
and, and making that present in their works. What are some of the ways that you can suggest? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. I mean, my, my initial response would be uh, to, to not do that um, for the following reasons, right? I mean, the kind of book that I've written here, uh, I would never suggest to anyone um, to make this their first book, right? right. Um, it's called a discipline for a reason. Um, you know, the, 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 this is in, in some ways a, this is a quirky book. This is a, uh, very idiosyncratic book. This is a very, I hope, imaginative, interesting, creative book. Um, uh, but I would never suggest that, um, one should write this as a, as a, a historical monograph. So for graduate students, I, I hope that they will read and benefit from, uh, this book and the kinds of questions it would ask. I hope that for all of us, scholars at any point in their careers, that they're thinking about these questions and thinking about um, the real consequences of, uh, of these questions for their own work. Um, and in places in which it becomes crucial to the narratives that they're creating, I hope that they would center these questions or these problems in the form of a footnote, for example, um, maybe an essay after a book is published or alongside a book, something like that. Um, but to do a kind of, you know, humanistic anthropology or what I call at one point sort of cheekily auto nonfiction in this book uh, as, uh, as a first entry for a, um, a career, I think would be would be a mistake just given the pressures the realities of what it means to be a historian today um you know i'm lucky in the sense that i have tenure at uh, uh um, a a prestigious university and that i'm able um after having written uh uh four books uh to be able to write something like this right um i never would have done this as a first book a second book a third book so it's it's um you know it, i i recognize my positionality and being able to do this and that's also part of the kind of service element that i see in writing a book like this right is that um you know that there's a privilege that allows one to write a book like this and i'm very cognizant of that i hope i'm cognizant of my privilege throughout this book i i, I try to center that in various places in the book to make that real right that's also a question that i think we as historians have to ask is the kind of privilege um that allows us to do this work right um as um graduate school funding gets more and more squeezed as there are fewer and fewer tenure track positions in history departments that pay a real living wage. Um, but those kinds of questions about the political economy of knowledge production, I think are absolutely crucial. We don't talk about them enough. We don't ask uh, those kinds of questions enough. So I, I very much want to center that in this, in this book as well. Um, but uh, to answer your question uh, more directly, um, you know, I, I would hope that there would be a, a kind of genre, um, a kind of venue in which uh, historians could write the, in this kind of way about their experiences of doing history, right? And historians do. I don't at all want to act as though I'm the first person to do this. There are people who have done this for Egypt itself, and there are people who do this um, for all kinds of other places. I cite all this work again in that last chapter of the book, and so I would refer, uh, I would refer listeners to that chapter. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, part of my goal is is to make this kind of writing and this kind of work a little more palatable for uh, a kind of normative understanding of of what historical scholarship is. And, and again, in the way that anthropology has done this much more successfully than I think history has as a discipline, is to make these kinds of questions real intellectual theoretical questions that historians talk about, write about, think with, um, and put as part of their scholarship. And that get credit for thinking about, about this, right? It's not, as I say in the book, it's not just the footnote, but what lies behind the footnote that I hope um, uh, more and more historians will pay attention to. Thank you for this sobering advice. And I guess, yeah, uh, the historians also can use other mediums and public facing scholarship to 
present themselves uh, as part of the pro- part of the process of uh, scholarship making. I guess. Um, before we move to our last traditional question, I would like to convey some of the vivid, beautiful uh, narrative that you have in this uh, book by reading a passage, if you would like. Uh, sure. Um, I'll read a paragraph from the, the beginning of the book. This isn't the very first words of the book, but it's, it's pretty, pretty close. The 10 years I worked in the archive not only made me a historian of Egypt, they also made a revolution that toppled the Egyptian government. Through thousands of quotidian acts of power and oppression, the state's economic failings and lack of political and social accountability bore down on individuals and families, communities, and relationships. Living and working inside a state institution before the revolution, I experienced how the state cultivated its own demise. My Egypt archive chronicles the decades before 2011, offering a singular perspective on one of the century's major political upheavals. It tells two inextricably bound stories. A historian learns the craft of history as society, as the society around him swells towards its own remaking. Thank you for that. Now we move to our last uh, question, and I would like it to be of two parts. The first part, um, and, and, and I, I don't mean any uh, hasad or enviousness, but you're quite productive in, in, in publishing. And uh, there is almost a book in every other year uh, that you have out. How do you keep pro- being productive and, and, and what's your secret for that? And the other uh, part of this question is that were you working on now or you hope to work on the future? Okay, um, just, just, to, just to correct you a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think it's not every other year that I publish a book. Uh, um, you know, every every four years or so. Um, that that's not a conscious strategy. That's just the way things have worked out. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I I like writing. Um, it is important to me. Um, I try to do it as regularly as possible. I'm interested in questions. Um, I'm interested in many different kinds of questions. I think also I, I'm a person who can kind of get bored with things. Um, so I like to grab the energy when I have it um, and, and to seize it in, in a moment. Um, what I'm working on now, several things. Um, the main project I'm working on is, is something that I came to in working on God's shadow. Um, and that is, uh, thinking more deeply about, uh, Islam and the Atlantic world, um, the place of Muslims and thinking about Islam in colonial America. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing a book that engages those kinds of questions much more deeply and rigorously. Um, and that's something that I'm really enjoying doing, um, you know, I think um, that is a topic that hasn't received the attention it deserves and um, is really crucial for uh, opening up all kinds of questions about um, the place of Islam in world history, uh, the Americas, um, and again, ties into my kind of very general interest in thinking about the Middle East and Islam in um its widest possible context thinking about how to connect the middle east to global history um so that's something i'm working on i have some uh environmental things that i'm still interested in um that um are kind of longer term projects that are operating at the level of of articles at this point but but may become books uh books later on um and then a few a few uh kind of smaller pieces so um yeah that's what i'm working on at the moment amazing and i'm glad you're picking on this project someone might say alan strikes back so <laughs> we're really looking forward to the realization of 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 that project and uh there was a joke uh that a friend of mine said after reading your book, and he said that, well, these Egyptians complain about their archives, but look how they're dominating the field. Just imagine if their archives were open, what would they do to the field? <laughs> so 
we are glad that <laughs> such uh, uh, restrictions and, and these archival words did not um, stop uh, historians of Egypt to keep producing amazing works uh, on Egypt and in the wider region. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking about this book and uh, reading it. And I invite the readers to pick it up. And uh, it's a quite quick and easy and beautiful read that you can finish uh, on one ride. Uh, and uh, I hope also to have it as an audiobook. I don't know if you have a plan a plan for that, but I think it should be an audiobook. It's, uh, it gives its way to be an audiobook as well. And thank you for uh, the listeners for tuning in and exploring with us uh, My Egypt Archive, published by uh, Yale University Press in 2023 by Alan Mikhail. And this is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies.